With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher at the James Altucher Show, and I'm welcoming Kamal Ravikant. Kamal, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, James. Really happy to be here. Kamal, I don't even know how to introduce you. You've done so many different things, and we talk about... We keep running into each other all over the country, whether it's venture capital stuff, personal improvement stuff, internet marketing, whatever. We're, you're, you're involved in everything. Yeah, or maybe I'm just talking to you, right? Yes, it's true. <laughs> so you're the author of Love Yourself, Live Your Truth. You're a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. You're a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. You do all sorts of things with internet marketing. So I want to talk about all of these things because uh, really, Kamal, the whole basis of this podcast is I want people to get the sense and the reality that they can free themselves from, you know, whatever's holding them back, whether it's a job or fears about their education or fears about whatever, relationships. And you've you've been through it all and lived to tell the tale. So uh, I'm just going to start asking questions and... You go for it. Yeah, sure. And actually, you know, one other thing was I was in the Army. You know, it's like, um, you know, I, I mentioned that because I'm very proud of that fact. And also, like, it just kind of shows I'm in such a different place in my life than I was in the Army. But just goes to show you how life, you know, you can just end up anywhere you want and utilize the experience that you had even when you were 18, now at 42. Okay, let's start with that because why the heck did you go in the Army? You're 18 years old. You probably could get into some school or whatever. Why'd you go into the Army? I was actually in a state school in upstate New York uh, for a year, and uh, it was like 16,000 people. Uh, everyone was from Long Island, and all they did was drink, and it was 500 people in my classes, and I would never go to class. I would just drink and get AIDS, and I was bored out of my mind. And I can't stand that whole getting AIDS thing. That's yeah. such a drag to get yeah. AIDS. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I was just bored, and I just wanted to be challenged. And uh, you know, at eighteen, like just it, that seemed like the best way to be challenged. So I just walked in the recruiter's office, and you know, he showed me photos of which you know how badass you could be, and I was like, okay, this sounds right. And also, I was you know having been you know I was born in India but raised in the in the in the U.S. and as being an immigrant and being uh, you know a young immigrant. You feel a certain level of patriotism and like gratitude to your country that you want to pay back, and so I did that as well. So I actually left school and joined the army. 
Well, and what did you start out as, a private? Uh, yeah, I did enlisted. I was uh, 11 Bravo at Fort Benning, which was infantry. You know, I took the lab, and that's a, that's a test I used to determine what, you know, what specialty you could choose. And I scored like 98 or 99 percentile, so I could have chosen anything, and I chose the one that the people who basically failed the ASAP take, which is infantry, but which is what it really the military is about, the, the, the foot soldier. And I tell you, that was like, it was a great training in life, you know, at 18, to be like being taught like people shooting at you and how to lead a team of men under stress like that. You know, you carry that with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, and this um, wasn't like, even though this was during the, Kind of the end of the Cold War it was short. It was probably not too many years after the the Gulf War, so there was potentially a reality of uh, going to war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you don't really think too much about that when you're 18, honestly. There's which a reason I think, why I think the, the sad thing, like, there's men. so many things huh? they send 18 year olds to, whether it's college or war, yeah. that 40 year olds would not go to. Like, I would never no go way. to college and I would never go to war. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think both you and I spend our time talking to people out of doing both. Yeah. Exactly. And yet people act like, oh no, it's uh, patriotic to join the army. These people are defending you. I'm fine with that, but I have, whenever I put, put back the argument, okay, well, you know, you're allowed to volunteer, too, and you're 45 years old. Nobody ever mm-hmm. says, okay, yeah, I'll volunteer instead of my child. So, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll I applaud you right? for joining. Like, I think it's a great thing that you joined, but I just don't see many, you know, 50-year-olds joining. Nor would I recommend it. In fact, these days, you know, people will ask me, even like 18-year-olds, and I'll say, listen, honestly, especially given the state of what will happen, where it will be sent, what might happen to you with the military, you're better off just grabbing a backpack, taking a couple thousand dollars, and go to a country where you don't speak the language for a few months. You will grow just as much as you would have in the military. You know, it's, it's the level of being thrown in situations where you're just not comfortable. Every day you're being challenged, which is what the military is really about. I would say, right? too, that's a good choice for any 18-year-old, even those 18-year-olds who are trying to decide whether or not to go to college. And I've talked about this on other podcasts, and you and I have talked about it quite a bit. But just in general, getting life experience is incredibly valuable as opposed to any organization or institution which is going to try to regiment you, which is either, you know, the Army or college. But again, the one thing about the Army, which I have to say, and I wish I had done it, is that you get a very good workout for at least six months. <laughs> it did, you know, I'll tell you something interesting. I used to be very, very undisciplined before the Army, and that was part of the reason... I thought it would teach me to be undisciplined, you know, because I never went to my classes and I just drank a lot, typical college freshman. And I learned something, which was um, in the Army, they can yell at you, scream at you, and they can force you to do stuff. In the end, you have to step up on your own and do it. Like, I remember, like, there was a, there was a in, in boot camp, your PT test, by the time you graduate, you have to score a certain amount on it. And... Um, if you score really high, crazy had to call you PT stud. And I was like the smallest guy in my unit, right? Like I was like the only brown guy uh, in the military, I think in the U.S. Army at the time. This was 1990, uh, at least enlisted wise. And so I had a bit to prove. So I kind of made a mental decision that I was going to be a PT stud in my unit. I was going to beat everybody's PT scores. So I remember like we would come back to our barracks like really exhausted and fall asleep at night. And while people would be sleeping, I'd be underneath my bed, my bunk doing push-ups. Now, there was no drill sergeant yelling at me, no one telling me to be in better shape, but it was like a little decision I made for myself, like a little, like, 
commitment I made to myself that I was going to be better. So I was actually doing that on my own, just on top of all they were making us do. And that was uh, a great lesson. How many push-ups did you do? Um, I was able to do, I think, like 90-something in two minutes. Oh, my gosh. And how many can you do right now, like 20 or 30 years later, however, however many years later it is? <laughs> Honestly, I can probably do about the same. I got to get in better shape. Come on. <laughs> I, I do yoga occasionally, but I'm not doing 90 push-ups in two minutes. So, um, so, You know, for that, I'll tell you something that changed my life. It was meeting Art Devaney, the guy that um, the paleo diet is based on, right? And he's been actually, he's a brilliant economist. And I got to meet and have dinner with him about five, six years ago. And he was, I think, 72 at the time. And I got to meet this man who's brilliant, really thoughtful, very zen, very measured in his thinking. So I, I was, I've always known I'll get better mentally and emotionally as I, as I, get, as I age. But, I got this, but this man is in such amazing shape. He's like rippling muscles, chiseled at 72, right? Wow. And I realized, well, oh, my God, do? I can get better as I age physically, too. That completely changed my life. I shifted my whole model of aging. So, so, so what does he do specifically? Sorry? What does Art Devaney do specifically? He's the one who came up with paleo. So is right? it just paleo, or is he doing push-ups every day, or, or is he going to the no, gym? No, he like, actually he... Uh, basically lives what he called the evolutionary fitness lifestyle, where he do, does brief moments of intense activity, and then just leisure. Like, his what's workouts a, what, are just a... like, I follow his very short, 15 minutes intense, uh, then just relaxing. What, what might be that activity? Like, is it running, or push-ups, or...? If it's running, it's sprints. Uh, there's a... If you Google him, and, you know, there's a great photo of him sprinting at when he's, like, 64 <clears throat> or something, and you would swear you're looking at a body of, like, a chiseled 20-year-old Olympic athlete. But how right? does he get chiseled? What's he, is he lifting weights or is he doing push-ups? He's lifting weights and uh, doing sprints. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm going to get started yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow, though, not today. <laughs> I'm a little busy today. <laughs> um, so, Kamal, uh -huh. let's, I want to start... Uh, go on and go backwards. So right okay. now, you're a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and you're involved in a bunch of different uh, uh, companies, like uh, whether it's AngelList or Wanello or lots of different companies. So w what are you seeing out there? Like everybody asks me, are we in an internet bubble? And my opinion is no. But what's what's your take? What's the Silicon Valley take on this? I'll tell you something. I was here during the first bubble. I was working, right? I was helping build a company that people now know as WebMD, right? So I got to experience all that. I've been here since, and I don't. It's not a bubble. It's boom times. It's boom times unlike anything we've ever ever seen. This makes like the bubble back then look like child's play. Yeah, what, mean, why is that? You, Are you saying in bubble terms or in boom terms? Like I don't understand. I'm, I'm saying in boom terms because bubble was the fact that if bubble is like is irrational expectations when you have companies, all these companies going public with negative revenues and significant burns and just pump and dump stock, right? Now it's like most of these companies are private. They'll never go public. They're going to be acquired. And it's like one-man, two-man teams. You know, you know, when you should take like 80 of us to build, you know, two guys can build now. Right? All the infrastructure, everything is, is so well in place. For example, AWS and Amazon. And also back then, like if you think about it, the only like about 30 million people in the U.S. were online. Now everybody's got a smartphone. Everybody's online. So, you know, in fact, we're, we're, we're rushing, rushing to catch up to all these people who have all this demand. 
the demand hasn't been met. You know, I think we, a bubble would be when we've exceeded the demand, and we're not even close. And there's so always at, great at innovation that, happening. At that point, so, so at that point, then, in 1999, you're saying we exceeded the demand. But, you know, Justin, I agree a bubble is where there's irrational expectations. But, there, but the expectation that the Internet would change all communication and all commerce, that expectation was rational. It just happened yeah. to be that there were there was many companies trying to meet the dream. But you have Amazon, eBay, Priceline, Apple, <laughs> Yahoo, Google. They met the dream. They were rational expectations. Yeah, and now look at a lot of the companies that are coming up, like, you know, that are, that are the modern-day version of Webvan, right? And that are doing great. In fact, I just invested in one called Pulse Rocket, and that you and I have talked about. Uh, at, at that time, it was, it was the technology was a limiting factor. It was a connection for, to the consumer, right? But now it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. You know, I can, you, can, you can build stuff that people in Africa in the middle of nowhere are using because they have a smartphone. It's, so, it's absolutely mind-boggling. So, so right now you you invest in companies, and and what are the types of things you look for? Um, in fact, uh, a great advisor of mine by the name of James Altucher taught me that you know there's. Ah, uh, Fusi, I, I don't know who he is. He's an unknown. To me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like the main thing. Um, actually, my model is a little bit different than the rest, which is I want to be the dumbest guy at the table. So I'm fortunate to have been here long enough that I know, like, the big players and I know people with the best track records investing, and they're friends of mine, they're people I love, people who love me. And in small markets, you know, like, as, as you and I know, even in public markets, you know, you have to be an insider to really have any, have any advantage. And so I invest with people I really know, who know this stuff really well, who are smarter than me, and I, and I go in with them and I pick and choose out of that. Um, so, like... My model is be the dumbest. So, so, so just as an example, like if Warren Buffett bought IBM shares, then IBM might be a good investment. That's kind of like at a stock market level, the way you're investing at a venture capital level. Yeah, but not just Warren Buffett. It has to be Warren Buffett and a couple other people. Plus, it would have to then meet the needs of my fund. Okay, like right. uh, so, you you would look for like four or five good investors. They're all kind of separately agreeing. XYZ is a good trend, a good company, and then you would start considering that company. Right, and then I would call up my friends at Google and so forth who really know the space or whatever company that knows that space and then get their real feedback on that as well. And what, um, what sectors are kind of uh, exciting to you in the Internet that, are, that nobody knows about yet? Well, that nobody knows about, you know, what's, <clears throat> everybody knows about Bitcoin. But what's coming up, and, you know, right now, is, I don't know if it's the time to invest because no one really knows which one's going to work, but it's the whole concept of blockchain, which is what Bitcoin is built on. That's, that, like, every smart person I know here is so excited about because it's literally like the new Internet. Okay, well, um, let's, let's explain that for a second because I don't think most people understand, actually, what Bitcoin is. Like, Bitcoin seems like this black box coin. Nobody really understands the software underneath it, and definitely nobody understands what, what a blockchain is. So I don't know if you can explain in a few sentences what a, what a blockchain is or, or how it works. Um, I don't know if in a few sentences I can, but I can tell you the, the main thing behind it, which is that there's no central authority. So you can create a contract, you can create a company, you can create a currency, you can do transactions without needing a central authority like a visa, like a Federal Reserve. You get rid of the middleman, and it's all done through the actual underlying system that handles it. It's almost like, you know, someone has coined it the Internet of Money, 
but it can be the Internet of anything. And what the Internet is, it, it basically allows you to communicate without a central authority. Right, there's no post office in the, the middle. There's no government right. in the middle. <clears throat> no government, no private company, no middleman, which is what the dream of all of us was back in the bubble days, right? Get rid of the middleman. Although now you see things like the NSA are in the middle bit. You know, they, they yeah. talk to Google, they talk to Yahoo, and so on. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but with Bitcoin, they can't that. because of the cryptography. Yeah, well, that's the theory. I mean, they're very smart people working over there. But in the sense that, I mean, like the, the here it is, like you don't need a visa. Like, why should be? Why should I have to go through a particular bank to be able to transact with you and give them a percentage of the fee when, when like a lot of times it's it doesn't really serve either of us. Right? Okay, this, well, this here's a great example. Here, here's a great example. Come on, I'm sorry to to interrupt, but let's say sure. I'm, let's say you're in China and you're selling me a car. Okay, or you're selling me anything, even a digital product like a book. Uh, mm -hmm. I have to send money to my bank, who then sends money to the regional Federal Reserve, who then sends money to the Federal Reserve, who then sends money to the Central Bank of China, and then it goes all the way down to the local bank of yours in China, and every step of the way, there's a fee. And all yep. of those fees added together, that's inflation. So if we yep. can wipe out all those fees by me just sending you a, a Bitcoin because it's cryptography, there's nobody other than me who can send you this Bitcoin. Like, there's no way to forge it. There's no way to fake it. Uh, it's impossible with, with current computers. Um, that wipes out a huge layer of fees in the system, in, in, global, in the global economy. Yeah, and that's, that's real innovation. And so that'll be very interesting to see what happens here. Though I wouldn't say anyone who doesn't know it to start investing in it. You know, it's like, <clears throat> you, you know, often you don't want to be too early. <laughs> and as you know, in the market as well, if you try to short something that you know is just overpriced, well, the market may just keep it going forever. And then when you run out of money, that's when it gets correct. Um, well, as, as uh, Naval, your brother, once told me, mm -hmm. if you think there's a 1 in 100 chance that Bitcoin will be successful, invest 1 100th of your portfolio in Bitcoin. That's simple enough. You know, another thing yeah. is, though, is cryptocurrencies in general. So there's not just Bitcoin. There's lots of different types of, you know, currencies based on cryptography. So if you uh, are a picks and shovels guy, so as opposed to the gold, let's say Bitcoin's like gold. So instead of right. investing in the Bitcoin, you invest in the companies that, let's say, help people create uh, stores for cryptographic <coughs> currencies or help people create, uh, you know, derivatives for crypto cryptography currencies. These might be, you know, better investments than the currency itself. In fact, <clears throat> I did invest in one, which does create derivatives for, for uh, cryptocurrencies, exactly. So not yeah. just Bitcoins, but all cryptocurrencies? Or it basically has yeah. the model for cryptocurrencies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's interesting. So, okay, so Bitcoin's one area to look into. And, you know, I'll tell you where Bitcoin's being used and where it's very interesting right now is Argentina. Because oh. Argentina currency is going to fail at some point. Everybody knows it. I mean, so maybe that means it's not going to happen. But it seems <laughs> like Argentina currency is doomed to fail. And the, there's such a big black market there that eventually people are migrating more and more towards these safe, secure Bitcoin currencies. And when, the, when that currency fails, it could be the case that Argentina Bitcoin sort of comes online and essentially forces other countries that do business with them to switch to Bitcoin. And that could 
you could see that who knows if it's one year or ten years from now that could be the spread of bitcoin yeah that could be the tipping point it just takes one country right it takes yeah. one country to actually just let them uh, use that for their transactions and then uh, it's done and you know it's a great way also for people to move money out of countries that are that have restrictive policies on doing so you know it's always like a big thing where people are always trying to move money out of china and all these places where you just can't so there's all these underground networks where you just you know you give someone money in one place and then their relative gives you money in the other country minus large chunks you know all of that disappears with this i'll tell you though one thing and and this is like you say this is just the beginnings of bitcoin but if somebody says, if some listener says, well, how do I get Bitcoin right now? It's not that easy. You can't no, just totally get it. You, yeah, you go to something like Coinbase or whatever. You know, like what happened in Mt. Gox, right? People lost their stuff. It's still early. And when these things are early, there's going to be a lot of dips and, you know, and people will come out of the woodwork saying, see, I told you so. You know, this is never going to work. But that just, as you and I know, that means it's going to work long term. Well, you know, Mt. Gox failed and Bitcoin price did fall, but it still hung in there between four and five hundred dollars uh, per Bitcoin. So that's not a yeah, failure. that's amazing. You know, and Coinbase is backed by you know some pretty big venture capitalists, so that that's a little more, more secure. But look, we'll see what happens. So that's one sector. What's another sector mm -hmm. that's interesting that you know mm -hmm. most people don't really know about? Well, my favorite tends to be like the intersection of online and offline commerce. You know, using your phone, when I say online, uh, like, uh, you know, you, now it's your phone. Using your phone to solve an on, you know, offline pain. Like in San Francisco, you know, the taxi service there is, is atrocious. Like where I live in the neighborhood, they wouldn't come on the weekends or if they call, if you call and, you know, they would say they're coming and then half a hour, half a hour, half hour later you call them back and they say, oh, the taxi driver picked us up along, along the way. It was horrible. So Uber started here. Right? There's a reason Uber started because it was just we were techies. We were just sick and tired of a really like an old, antiquated system, you know, that we were dependent on. And and so Uber took off, and you know now everyone knows about Uber. But that concept about just me pull out my phone and boom, I can just order a taxi or a cab or whatever, and then shows me the person on the way, and that person is rated, and I rate that person, so there's customer feedback, and that you know you know that this this is not some some guy's going to scream and yell at you or be drunk or whatever. You know, they'll be thrown out in a second. Um, you know, that's amazing. So that's happening with delivery. Like one company I invested in called Ship, which does the same thing. It's Uber shipping. They come and take all my stuff and ship it. It doesn't cost me any more than I would if I went to the post office. I well, love it. Oh, I, never I, I don't get it. So let's say I call them. They'll just drive to my, like, are they like UPS? No, it's actually an app. I pull out my app. I take all my, my items I'm going to ship. I take a photo of each item, I put in the address it's going to, and then, you know, next, 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 and then I say, okay, ready, and I click ready, and it shows me actually the driver, the, or the name of the driver, they're on their way, where they are on the map, shows me they'll be here in 20 minutes, they come in 20 minutes, they take all my stuff, they ship it, they send me an email confirmation and build my credit card. I have to do nothing. It's going to be on taking a photo and putting an address in. Uh, why you isn't know? that like UPS? Um, well, for example, <coughs> uh, UPS... Um, UPS is not going to do that. I have to go to UPS. I mean, I guess you could create an account with UPS and do that, but for people like myself, they're not regular shippers. I just want to send packages here and there. For example, my books to I... friends, right? This is perfect. Oh, I have to send someone yeah. a straw hat in Philadelphia, you know, who left their hat here. You know, I just do ship. I don't have to go to the post office. And companies like these are popping up, which are taking away the pain of going standing in line, 
dealing with trying to figure out which is the right shipping option and so forth. Uh, these guys just do it. Um, and there's more and more companies coming like this that are solving this pain, whether it's for commerce or for um, health. You know, you pull out an app, you're not feeling well, you pull out your app, you know, you put in the uh, doctor's on his way and he's going to come to your house and, and take care of you. Like, this is really interesting stuff that's happening. So, so what can I do, like, now, if, I'm, if I want to buy a, if, are there any stocks that I could buy to invest in, like, Bitcoin or uh, this Uber-like technology? Is there anything out there? Stocks? Yeah, like uh, the, 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 the Winklevoss twins, you know, that, that fought with Mark Zuckerberg in, in that movie. Mm -hmm. They're setting up like a publicly traded Bitcoin fund right now. Uh, I don't trust publicly traded stuff, honestly. <laughs> I'm curious, though, when, when if, it's, uh, if, it's, if it's like a Bitcoin closed-end fund or something, that might be interesting, but I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I don't know. There's so many smart people with so much technology, so much like vested interest, in, you know, in the public markets who are ahead of me. Like, I wouldn't know what to do there. I'm not smart enough for that. Well, you know what's um, interesting is take AngelList. That is a way mm -hmm. for private investors to find companies that are private still and invest in them. I don't know if people really better. know about that company. Even better but if, you're, if you're an accredited investor, which is, you know, the, the requirements are pretty low in the U.S., what you do is you go to AngelList and you find an investor who has an amazing track record, like Tim Ferriss or Jason Calcanis or um, the guy started big. Um, uh, Kevin Rose. His name. Yeah, Kevin Rose, right? They have a really great track record, and they have something called syndicates where, like, you can actually invest in what they're going to invest in along with them. Right, you just but you can invest in small amounts. You can say two thousand dollars, a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, and just go in with them. So immediately now you have a basically a portfolio that the same companies these guys have at the same terms they have. That's amazing. That's never been done before, right? So now you're going along with the Buffets. You're, he's investing your money with you. And that and that's at angel.co.co. Yeah, I think the best part there as well is that these guys don't just. It's not like they'll take the money from the syndicates and invest. They're investing their own, and the syndicates are investing with them, right? So it's always they're putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah, right? so it's but almost like a kind of a stock market of private companies. Yeah, so like whereas before Jason would be putting in 50K, now he can put in 500K in a company because of his syndicate. And, you know, <clears throat> Jason's in Uber and all these other things, and he's a very sharp investor, like uh, Jason, Tim, Kevin, all these guys. Uh, that's that's really interesting way though you know one thing to keep in mind is um, you know startup investing angel investing I used to work for an angel fund years ago and but old school angel and he was my mentor and he was an amazing guy and he taught me he said you know angel investing is the easiest way to lose money just know that going in right it's like <laughs> like if you, especially if you don't you know if you haven't been in this for a long time you you you're guessing so well, that, that's why I think the most important rule in angel yeah. investing is always invest alongside uh, a really good venture capitalist because then you know you're not just angel investing, you're also venture capital investing. Yeah, yeah, go and be the dumbest guy at the table. is the smartest thing you can do. Now, that's so, my secret. Let's see if it works. <laughs> but I think it will. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and also diversification helps, like being in a bunch of industries, you know, the usual things. Yeah. Come on, I want to talk about your, your books now. So mm -hmm. when, when we first met... We were going back and forth. We were trying to meet, but you were really, really sick. And yeah. then you came out of it. And I asked, "What did you do 
to stop being sick? Like, I thought you were going to die or something. Like, what, what happened? Um, this was when I was building my last company, and, you know, like, I went all in, and it just really looked like it was going to be a big hit, and I put, I had all my money in it, and my friends put money in it, family put money in it, and the whole thing blew up, and I lost everything. I was in serious debt, and, you know, people had lost money. I got really, really sick. Um, I worked for nonstop for, like, three and a half years. I think I, last year was when I finally started taking Sundays off from the office. Like, I had taken one vacation. It was just, you know, just insane. Um, did you have a girlfriend so at the time? I did, and she was wonderful, and I was an ass. And, you know, obviously that didn't work out because my company came first, right? I was, a, I mean, I, I, I called her and apologized about it afterwards. And, you know, she's a great girl, and, and she's moved on. I'm very happy for her. Um, but, you know, a relationship can't survive. And, like, you know, a relationship, I, like, I was so, everything came first. Like, I mean, my company came first above everything, my social relationships, my, you name it, whatever, my spirituality, you know, anything, right, my health. And so I burnt out, and I got really sick, and, and the doctors couldn't figure out. turns out I'd been, I'd been sick, for, sick for like six months, and I'd just been going, powering through it, and thought it was stress. And until I just, like, I was like, I couldn't even get up in the, you know, I couldn't walk properly. I was so exhausted. And... Um, and then, so, like, I was basically bedridden for, for a while and miserable. And uh, my company was failing. Every, I'd lost everything. I was just, you know, I think if I was, I, like, you know, this is honest. If I was depressed, it was a good day. It was, I was, it was an upswing. I was just pure misery. And there was one morning when I woke up and I just decided, like, I can't do this. Like, I can't live like this. I'm just going to get out of it and die trying because this is, this is not worth it. And so I made a vow to myself, and I think maybe it goes back to like you know how we talked about the commitment thing and the, to to oneself in boot camp that I was going to be a PT stud and do pushups right. underneath, underneath my bunk at night. It was like that same level of intensity. I made a vow that I was actually going to do something to get out of it. And what I chose was I made a vow to love myself. And trust me, I didn't even believe in the word love before this. I don't know where it came from. It came from a real place of desperation. And I was just going to really just love myself in every thought, every action, everything I did, and every way I was conscious, I was going to focusing on love myself, because I was really hating myself at the time. And so I started just trying things. I just started trying things. I was locked up in my bedroom, and I just did, you know, things in my head. And some I noticed started to shift my head, so I went, I went with them. And after, like, about a little while, I came up what, with a practice. What, that what do you mean something things. shifted in your head? Like, what was going on? Like, my thoughts started getting more positive. Like, I started feeling better, and I just really noticed what worked, and I refined it, and what didn't work, I threw it out. And so in the, in the end, I just came up with a practice that I did every day, and I, I got well. And not only did I get well, my, I got real, like, I got better in every way, like emotionally, physically, like, my life started to get better, like in ways that I couldn't quantify, like in the sense that I couldn't say that I made this happen, but just everything just started to get better. I was like, ooh. I think I've hit something. And so that's when we met. I told you about it. And I remember you saying, you need to write about this. And I kind of like poo-pooed it because I was like, you know, you, you didn't talk about this in Silicon Valley. You know, I'd failed. And the last thing I wanted to do was write about, like, well, this guy failed and, you know, got better by loving himself. And then I you know, think in the end I wrote the book because I committed to you. And, you know, I want to let uh, commitment go. And... Um, you know, putting that book out, you know, which I was so terrified of putting out. And, you know, you're the one who told me, like, you don't put anything out unless you're scared what people will think of you. And that's one of the best advice I ever got. 
And so I put it out. And, you know, within five weeks of being out, it's self-published. That book was the number one self-help book on Amazon. No marketing. And this, and this was the book like you, titled Love Yourself. Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. Right. Yeah. And it was very simple, very honest. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I taught myself to write over like 15 years really obsessively, so I know how to write, how to get a message across simply. So I worked very hard on it. Um, but in the end, it was just a simple, to-the-point book that's, you know, like I get emails every day from people about how it's helping them changing their lives. And it's, it, the book, putting that book out changed my life. Just showed me the power of just really being your honest, real, vulnerable self to the world. You know, being, being ready to be a, a laughing stock. And you know what the world does? It just loves you. It just, just people are so hungry for it. it well, that, I think people, that book, I changed I think... my life. I think people relate to it because everybody, I don't know about everybody, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think a lot of people are scared out there. Like we live, you know, even though you say times are booming and I believe that, we also live in this era of greater economic uncertainty than ever before. Probably because, you know, the notion of the safe nine to five job has been gone since 2008. Yeah. Yeah. And so people have a hard time loving themselves. First, they feel like, oh, well, I've got to pay the bills first, and then I need to love myself. Even though I think your book shows that the reverse happens. Like, yeah. first, it comes from within. Yeah, the best advice, probably the best advice I ever got was from a friend who said, life is from the inside out. It's like working your inner self first, always, and the outer self just resolves itself. You know, so, whatever you want to believe in how that happens, that's up to you. But, you know, even if it's just on the fact that your attitude determines everything, you know, to the very base, from the very basic to maybe there's more to reality than, than we like to think. Who knows? So, so you wrote this book, which was very personal, and, you know, it was, it, was, it was basically how you got through this kind of period of sickness by, uh, you know, telling yourself you love yourself and, and applying these exercises into practice. And the main mm -hmm. thing I have to ask is, did a lot of women write to you after that and hit on you? I wish. Actually, you know, I, they write to me, but they write for advice on the existential crisis. You know? <laughs> I need to write a book on sex or something for that. Uh, uh, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe that's just like Tucker gets those emails. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's okay. Like, like, it's amazing how, you know, I've been... If, if this is so putting my, I really come to believe that people are fundamentally good. Just the emails I get from everyone, you know, just everyone, people want, uh, just want to share. They want to connect. You know, I really have started to know that for a fact now. That fun, I mean, despite the fact that our human race does some really stupid, silly things, uh, you know, historically, fundamentally people are good, and that you know that's what connecting my readers has taught me. It's just such a gift. Well, I, I also think it's the times too, like. I think always people act out of their self-interest, but I think it's more in people's self-interest now uh, to be compassionate to others and to work with others because the normal structures we live in are breaking down. And, you know, you, you, have, to, you, you have to be compassionate to others so they're compassionate back to you. And again, it's not a totally selfish thing. Like, it turns out compassion, you know, reinvigorates all parts of the brain and actually makes you a stronger, smarter, healthier person. But it's really important now because the normal uh, safety nets we have aren't catching us anymore. 
Yeah, and I mean, actually, look, remember how you built yourself back up? You would just every day email people and give to them, right? And expecting yeah. nothing in return, right? It was just so, like, if that's, that is the best way to build yourself up in life. Like, you know, forget working in your career or whatever. This will take care of it. Well, no, you have some great blog posts on it, and also you talk about choose yourself, how you did that. And, you know, you gave, and you give and give, and people give back in amazing ways. It's true. People, if you if you help others, they're go. Not everybody, but but right, people right. who are really also in tune themselves, they're gonna. The people you want to are going to give back to you. And I have found for myself over the past four or five years an amazing community that I never had before. Only because I started doing my own version of you know what I call a, a daily practice of of health for myself and and of giving to others. Yeah, and your daily practice, honestly, I think is the best thing ever written on the Internet. Oh, I really well, do. thank you very much. I, I tell people that's what the Internet was created, for that one post. But what is it, How to Be the Luckiest Guy Alive? Yeah, That one yeah. post. I think I sent everyone to that post. In fact, my second book, I have a chapter about it. Like, go read that's the, one post. that's the reason the Internet exists. Go read it. Yeah, uh, Live Your Truth. So you wrote two books, and mm-hmm. talk about that. Like, I think you've sort of... For me, you sort of changed the definition of a book because these were small books. They were self-published. You've made a, a good living off of them. They've sold quite a few copies. They both were bestsellers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Love Yourself still consistently sells quite a bit. Um, how, what what can people do to uh, like? What did you do to market these books, if anything? Well, Love Yourself, I actually hid underneath a rock and pretended I, you know I didn't exist after I put it out. You wrote a blog post about it, which launched it. And then just, you know, it's like, that's like, you know, like when you launch a product or an app or a company, anything, right, you can, you can almost game the system if you want, but that's short-term. In the end, if, if the product is quality, it markets itself. It's as long as the key is you put it where people are, people are going to be. Like, I, you know, I could have written that book as, as like 20 or 30 blog posts on my blog, and 20 or 30 people would have read it, and that would have been it. I took that same book and, you know, same, same um, information, crafted it as a book and packaged it as a book and put it in the world's largest bookstore, Amazon, right? Everyone goes to Amazon to buy books. And what happened? You know, people were there looking for this kind of information, and that's, it was really that simple. You know, I tell people, either do not try to be a special, you not talk about this, you know, don't try to be a special snowflake on the web. Don't create your own little special fancy site and just think because Google exists, people will come find you. You know, if you build it, they will come. Go where people are. You know, create something of value, right? And that ultimately people will pass around, which is what happened with mine. Like, people tweet about it every day. People, every, you know, every once in a while I'll Google it and I'll find all these new blog posts people have written about it. Or, you know, the, all these amazing people just tweet it on their own. Like, Cheryl Wilkinson tweeted about it. Tim Ferriss tweeted about it. Like, you know, they, I never asked them. I mean, I didn't even know Cheryl. Uh, that's how I got to know Cheryl was because she read my book, right? And she found it through some other source. The key is, the key is really this simple. Create something of value, you know, that's more about uh, giving to others than to yourself, um, and then put it where people are. If you're, like, creating videos or movies, put it on YouTube. Do not create your own special site, you know? If you're doing, you know, um, there's books, movies, you know, it's... A podcast, you know, don't create your own special site and do podcasts there. Put it on iTunes. People on iTunes searching for podcasts. Go where they are. And that's, I think that's like the 80% of the secret right there. Create something of value, put it where people are. And that's the beauty of the Internet. And what we've built over here is 
that's available. Middlemen, you know, you don't have to go to a studio executive or a movie executive or even a book publisher. You know, like, right. Again, it's sort of like uh, what you were saying before about Uber. You don't have to go to a taxi cab company to get a taxi. You can just t say take your car out and join Uber's, you know, fleet of drivers, and now you're a driver. You, yeah, and actually so, now a lot of the Uber drivers I meet are former taxi drivers who love it because they control their hours. They can turn the app on and on, work whenever they want. They get paid, you know, paid regularly. They don't have to kiss up to any dispatcher. They don't have to pay all the exorbitant fees. They don't have to worry about medallions. It's actually created a whole, like, system of entrepreneurs, like real-time real freelance entrepreneurs. It's a very so, interesting uh, economy that's developing out of this. Yeah, so it's interesting. So it's almost like the employment numbers are not really telling the full story of what's happening in this economy. Yeah. Because we also have yeah. this booming innovation economy as well, where people could be solopreneurs, you know, kind of one-man entrepreneurs, uh, and create these businesses, whether it's you writing a book or a driver uh, joining Uber. I've, I've seen some drivers uh, get a fleet of cars and have their own kind of limo companies completely under the umbrella of Uber, taking care of all the logistics. Yep. yep. Now you have basically, you know, you have, fundamentally, Uber is just a dispatch service that has a distribution, right? A dispatch service that anyone could plug into. Yeah. So I can, take, I can take my car out. Well, I don't have a Both. driver's license. Claudia can take <laughs> our car out and, and call up Uber and say, I'm joining Uber right now. And suddenly they'll dispatch her to whatever the next the closest uh, rider is. Yeah. And now then you have this beautiful Argentinian woman driving around. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to call up all the time so no guys hit on her. <laughs> so, so... Um, so again, though, with love yourself and live your truth, you always were giving me advice about, you know, book marketing and everything. But one thing I thought was interesting is how, how many pages is love yourself? Oh God. Um, the paperback, I think is like, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages. It's short. It's like less than 10,000 words. Right. So no publisher in the world would touch Zero. a 50 page book. And yet you Zero. were able to publish that and sell more copies than 99% of the books sold out there. And Amazing, uh, huh? it, it changes the publishing industry. Yeah, I mean, I have, like, agents contacting me now and, you know, trying to get me to go to publish. So they keep on saying, what are they going to do for this book that I can't do my best? Basically, Amazon is not doing for me, and no one's going to be able to answer that. And they say, well, again, your bookstores, but then we'll also take most of, we'll own the book, we'll own the rights to it, and also we'll give you far less. It makes no sense. So what, what do you um, think your next book will be? Um, basically, I, I'm following the Louis C.K. and George Carlin model, where I want to write one book a year based on everything I've learned from, from the last one, since the last one, right? So not repeat, you know, not like I love yourself too or whatever. Whoever I am now, the things I've learned right now. So I'm kind of writing a book right now based on some of the talks I've given um, where I was sharing new stuff I've learned and see what good comes, you know, See if I can craft something valuable out of it. And, and so and that's what it, new just stuff? one book a year. Hmm? What, what new stuff have you learned? What new stuff have I learned? You know, I think I've learned more, like, I think you and I have talked about this. So we've been at the bottom, right, a, a few times in our lives. And we can, we can always write more material out of it. But at some point, like, when you're on the upswing, you want to write about what you're learning there, too, right? So I'm learning, writing more about that, about more on the entrepreneurship side, like what it takes, and when I say entrepreneur, I mean like 
doing anything worthwhile in life, anything that's an expression of you. That's my definition of entrepreneurship. It doesn't have to be running a business. It could be writing a book. It could be raising a child, whatever, just an expression of you. And just, you know, I've learned, you know, I'm surrounded by, like, some insanely successful people, repeatedly successful people. I've had some success. I've had failures. You know, I'm, you know, fortunately, I've learned from them. And, you know, I've learned it's, it's all a mental game in the end. It's always a mental inside game. So I'm, I'm writing about that, what it takes. Because, you know, you run into people all the time and they just stop with fear. And it's almost like, well, fear is part of the process. Fear is the beacon. Fear is like, oh, good, you're up to something. You know, you have to, like, it's almost like take the same emotion but look at it differently. So I'm kind of exploring that right now. Yeah, I, uh, I like that. I might have to steal all of that. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Jim. I need material. So, so, um, what was the business that failed? Uh, it was an ad network. It was a, it was a very good ad network. I was doing very well. Um, but you know, it's like, uh, I, you, you, I made the wrong, some of the wrong choices in partners. Uh, I got, I, in the beginning, you know, once it was doing really well, you know, I got people involved who were, that showed me all the money that was going to be made and I got greedy. And so when you're greedy, when you're hopeful, when you're fearful, you choose the wrong people. You know, like, I didn't say no when I should have said no many times, but I just, you know, like, actually, I said Tucker was in town this week, and I had dinner with him, and he said something very sharp. And Tucker's a great observer of human behavior, and he said, you know, people tell you who they are. He said, listen to what they, who, listen to them. They tell you who they are. And it's, it's a lesson I've also learned in business, like, people, and this is something that I've talked about with Naval and a bunch of other seasoned entrepreneurs, like, people are remarkably consistent in business, you know, like, if, if someone has a history of screwing people over, you will never be a special snowflake. Eventually, you will be part of that list, right? Just stay well, away well, from those well, people. That, like, that's very interesting. Like, what, what, when he said that, like, what was he specifically referring to? Like, a business or a relationship or we what, were talking what was about his women, example? Actually. Talking, I mean, that's a, Tucker's a great guy to talk about women, you know. <laughs> yeah, but we were talking about women at the time. But then the conversation shifted to business where I was telling him, like, how I just um, – Two friends of mine recently, you know, talk, I ran into them, and it turns out they've been screwed over by the same guy, right? Same entrepreneur who just screwed them out because of the contract he wrote, and they were just naive and they trusted, right? And this guy has, I mean, I'm just finding consistently, this guy just has a history of it. And you find that, you know, certain these people do that, stay away from them. You're not a special snowflake. You're not the one that they're going to love. Just, so, but, you know, like, I think when we make decisions out of fear out of, and, and hope, actually, is when we, uh, when we say yes, when we should say no. And, you know, like saying no is one of the most important things we learn in life. Um, so you say no to, so you can say yes to the right people. I think I said, you know, if I didn't, I made that mistake. It's hard to say no. You know, I think people... It's very we're, hard. We're, yeah. we're, learned, we, we're taught from early on to say yes to all of our teachers, to say yes to our parents, and then and then we're taught early on to say yes to opportunities it, rather than really weighing them and, and deciding if they're good for us or not. And, and you know what? Most opportunities and most people around are not that good for us personally. They might not be bad people, but they might not be good for us. And no yeah. becomes very important to learn, particularly as I get older, I realize I can always, and I've done this, I can always lose a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or heck I can always lose multiple millions but I can never and and I can make it back you know if I'm good and I'm and I work hard and so on um, but I can never get today back so this is the one day I can never lose to I, I could lose today 
Like this is the day that could go. And uh, yeah. time is very important, and no is what protects your time. And actually, you told I think either you told me this or Claudia told me this. So, like, saying no well, gives the space for the yes for the right opportunity for the right person. It's the old Zen you know, thing about if you keep on, you, can't, you, cannot, you cannot fill a full teacup, right? You have to, you, you have, the teacup has to be empty for you to be able to fill it. If the teacup is full, if you're full of because you said yes to wrong people, yeah, I mean, you know, then you want you the the right people, the right opportunities won't appear or won't be available. Yeah, that's really true. So so, okay, so switching gears to Silicon Valley again, mm-hmm. what what I sort of feel like, you know, things like Twitter, Facebook, all of these companies, they they create hundreds of billions of dollars in value. Like the whole West Coast must be booming with everybody buying, like you know, everybody spending all their new money. Like we've had yeah. all we've, we've had this IPO boom in the past year, where yeah. three hundred billion dollars in value maybe has been created. Yeah, the area where I live, and I'm actually looking at my living room window. It's like the rents are just kind of insanely, just absolutely insanely. And I'm looking out; there's cranes everywhere. So it's, it's definitely starting to feel like Shanghai. Really does, that, does that trickle down into the economy in any way, like more startups getting funded or... Yes. Yes, yeah. that is one of the beautiful things we have in the Valley is like once you make money, you, uh, once you make money, you just, you just become an angel investor and you invest in new entrepreneurs. It's, that's it, that's a, something very special here that you don't see in most industries. You don't see once people make money in finance, they, they support other... I, you know, up-and-coming financial entrepreneurs or whatever. They and support they, a lot of brothels. So they what? They support a lot of you know whorehouses and things like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's that's a whole different industry. It makes money. Yeah, yeah, the oldest profession, more yeah. older, than, older than technology. So, um, so what else? What else is going on? You're looking at all these companies. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, so I'm running this fund, which is which is just great. Um, you know, I get to, you know, I, I mean, it's like a talk about not getting old. Like, you know, you keep yourself mentally active. You get to meet all these entrepreneurs who are just doing great new things, and I get to learn from them and see what's coming down the kind of coming down the road, and hopefully invest in some of them. Like, what's and a typical day? What did you do today? Uh, today, actually, I meditated and I and I read because of the I had this podcast coming up and. <laughs> I get very, you know, funny thing is, I get very, very nervous about interviews, and especially on stage, I'm terrified. I'm like literally petrified when I go on stage. But I do, but I end up doing well, I think because of like, actually you gave me some great advice, you know, which was one, I didn't do that today because I didn't have a chance, um, but you know, you said watch comedians and meditate beforehand. And so, I, so actually today I did that, and then after this, I'm going to start working. I'm going to get on, there's a couple of companies I'm looking at, I have to talk with the CEOs. And I'm doing some diligence on them, and so I have to like call a friend of mine who know the space and just you know go through with them. And then I'm um, actually doing some research on crowdfunding because it's such an interesting thing. Uh, I'm going to spend about an hour or two just reading up on that, and then just write for a couple hours. That's my day. Oh, that's great! And you're and you're writing on this this new book. Yeah, yeah, you know, really. I mean, the funny thing, funny thing is, <laughs> I think I'm like the laziest guy on the planet too. Uh, I, I doubt that you're uh, running a VC fund, writing books left and right. Like it doesn't sound so lazy, but but go ahead, I'll give you that for a little bit. It really is. And I, I, 
you know, there's, there's a, like a, there's a positive to be like on your own. There's also a negative to be on your own. Because sometimes you just get lazy. You just sit around and read or whatever. Um, I was, but but you know, I it's was, it's again, it's the eighty twenty rule, which is sort of identifying, uh, you know, for people who work sixty hours a week, really only twelve hours of that provided eighty percent of the value. So it's a matter yeah. of discerning which 12 hours are the important ones and spreading that over the week is only a couple hours a week. You know, Tim Ferriss was telling me the original title he really wanted to do for the four-hour work week was the two-hour work week because that's how many hours he actually did spend on his business. But his publishers didn't think anybody would believe it. Wow. That's great. That's and it, great. So it sounds like, you know, that's... You know, I was once uh, reading an interview with Anatoly Karpov who was... Uh, mm -hmm. the world chess champion. Anatoly Karpov was the world chess champion in the 1970s and the 1980s. And uh, he said the most he could spend studying chess per day is tops three hours. So that shows you, here's a guy who's world-class level. He was the best in the world for a good 15 years. And for him, the top work day, the top hardest working day he could do to, to really be productive was a three-hour day. Wow. Yeah, so That's it's amazing. important to know that any hour, any minute after that quickly loses its so-called marginal utility, to put it in economics terms. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Actually, you had a great post about, um, or was it a podcast, about it was the second arrow that kills you, about this, you know, the beating of yourself up for the procrastination that kills you. Yeah, or feeling like, or feeling like you're lazy. You know, so it's yeah. one thing not doing work, but then that may or may not be good. Who knows? That's the first arrow. arrow. But the second arrow, feeling bad about it, that's the one that hurts. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was a great post, one of my favorites. So, so you, I know you go to a lot of uh, kind of these mastermind things where you learn all the secrets of Internet marketing. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe describe what, what that is. Like, what do you learn in one of those? Because, And the reason I ask is, let's say I wanted to start uh, uh, an Internet business. I had some product I came up with, and I wanted to start selling You know, selling that product. What should I do? Well, actually, the only master... I get invited to a lot, but the only one I belong to is the one run by Ryan Dice and Harry Belcher. And Ryan is a close friend. I got to meet years ago when I was building my last company. I've even actually met at a bar. He was traveling to San Francisco. We just started chatting, and he just started to be such a good guy. I remember, like, I told him, like, hey, in the bar and closed. I was like, hey, dude, I realize we're in San Francisco, and this sounds odd, but why don't you come back to my place, and I have a great bottle of wine, we'll just continue talking. And he came back, and we stayed up all night just talking about his family and his kids and his wife, and we were friends for, like, you know, a year or two, but neither one of us cared what the other did. And then one day he called me up, and he said, I have this mass internet marketing mastermind. Why don't you come, because... You're a Silicon Valley guy. We could use, like, you know, new kind of blood and a different viewpoint. And I went, and it was amazing because all these guys, they're in there. Um, they're all very sharp very, and a lot of very good people. I've made some great friends there. In fact, a bunch of LPs in my fund are from there um, who are just very good at figuring out how to basically acquire customers and convert them. You know, which is fundamentally what every business is. You get a customer and you convert them, actually, and even keep them. And that's what these guys, and they get together these masterminds, and this particular one, they all share with each other. Like, hey, how did I take my Facebook, you know, like how to acquire customers for my Facebook campaigns, but not like, hey, I did this, but also like this is the headlines I use, this is the landing page copy I use, 
This is a little trick I figured out how to like convert from five percent to twenty five percent. Really sharp, interesting people. Oh, so I what are some it. of those like, tricks? What are some of those tricks? Um, <laughs> I mean, how how do I convert tricks? from five percent to twenty? So I, so I send out a list to let's say a hundred thousand people or fifty thousand people, and I wrote a book, uh -huh. uh, top ten ways to survive after the apocalypse. Uh, how do I and, I, and I'm going to sell it for 30 bucks. How do I send this, how, how do I, con, you know, double my conversions from 5% to 10%? What's the best Actually, way? Actually, one of the smartest things I heard someone share there, and like, I don't think this is a big secret, is, but I guess it was the fact that what he did was he actually was selling a client's products on the client's website, right? And he was buying traffic on Facebook and, and very, very targeted traffic and sending it to a landing page. And it was converting something like half a percent or whatever. But then what he did was he just took the same product and you'll, you'll get it the moment I tell you what he did. He took the same product, put it on Amazon, and bought the traffic and sent them directly to Amazon. And it was, instead of like half a percent, it was like five or seven percent, which is huge. So, and okay, why? so wait, because let me understand. So, instead of sending the traffic to a page he set up, he said sent traffic to a page Amazon set up, letting Amazon take their 30% cut or whatever it is. Sure. Um, but the idea is everyone trusts Amazon, but nobody Bingo. trusts some random website out there, like as you put it, the snowflake that's out there. Yeah. I mean, it was like when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, this makes perfect sense. Why be a special snowflake, special snow storefront on the web? Like now I meet any e commerce people, if they're not doing any, if they don't have the program on Amazon, I tell them they're shooting themselves in the foot. Like, that's the world's largest store, people there searching. You can even buy traffic and send people there, and it will convert better than anything else. How, like, how, what's the best way to buy traffic? Um, depends. I would say, I wouldn't say Google because you really have to know what you're doing and most people don't because they just lose money. Uh, even most agencies don't. They just know how to spend your money. Uh, Facebook is, is still really good because you can really target people in a way um, that's still very interesting and, and Facebook is still slightly inefficient. Google is so efficient with their pricing. You know, just like you're you're paying, you have to really know what you're doing on the buying traffic, but also the converting and retaining it to actually make your money. So uh, right now, I would just say Facebook. Uh, Twitter should be interesting when they do their app installs. I'm surprised they haven't done that yet. But that's such a big money maker for Facebook mobile. Um, but right now, I would just say simple. You know, like if someone who doesn't know the Internet, just like but you can go to Facebook, you can read up on how to do their stuff, and start with like a $20 campaign and see what – See what happens. It's, I would say do that. And, and so let's say my report. Let's so, so let's say I have a report. Uh, Fifty ways to survive after the apocalypse. You're saying kind of constructed as a book somehow. Uh, what if my price is like way beyond what people consider a normal price for a book, but not necessarily way beyond what's a normal price for an information product? Is Amazon still like the best place to send pe traffic to? You know what, in that case, what you do is you create a low-end product. And this is actually another thing I learned from Ryan's Mastermind. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, those guys do a, a conference uh, called Traffic Conversion, which everyone should go to. You learn so much there. Uh, you learn all of this there once a year in January. Um, is, is you basically create something called a lead, ma lead magnet, where rather than your $30 book, you create a 99-cent book, right? And with, with really valuable content, but that's just a small piece of the bigger pie. You create that, and you sell that, or you even do it for free. So people come to Amazon, get it. You know, people love it, give good, good reviews because it's valuable, it's cheap. But in there, 
you can talk in the end, like, listen, if you want to learn more, here's the bigger one, and link up to that, right? Or give me an email address, and I will send you more and better stuff. And once you have e- email marketing is probably the, you know, nothing I learned from these guys is the most effective marketing that exists. But you really, you have to know what you're doing there, right? But it converts better than anything else. There's yeah, that's, those little uh, that's been definitely true for me. Yeah. So, like, you could create something of, like, a low, like, a, low-margin, high-value product, put it on these sites, and use that to convert people into the larger-value product. You know, people do that all the time. Like, one of the guys in there, you know, Perry, talked about how if some, he, he can, you know, you can, if someone spends $7 on a product from you, they would more, much more likely to buy a $1,000 product than someone who didn't spend anything. So get the people to spend that initial part, that initial small little part, and then they and give them great value. You always have to give value. If you're not giving value, you're scamming people, and and it'll catch up to you, right? right. So create something of really high value, really nice low price point, and then offer from there the bigger piece, the large, the much bigger money piece. Well, so now let me ask you this: Do you think you'll ever choose between you know writing slash internet marketing uh, and being a venture capitalist, or you think you'll you'll pursue both? Well, I don't do internet marketing. I just learn it because it's so interesting. Uh, but I, I learn it so that I can help my the companies I invest in, right? And uh, customer acquisition and, and traffic, all this other stuff. Stuff I wish I did when I was building my company. You know, like customer acquisition is such a fundamental, basic thing of building a business, and most people pay no attention to it. Right, so like I learned it as it's intellectually really stimulating for me, and also I can help companies here in the valley. I haven't done anything on internet marketing. I just play, you know, hang out with the best to learn from them uh, through this master plan. Uh, as far as choosing between venture and um, and books, I I think I found my calling with both. Um, I don't think I want to be a writer like nonstop full time because I I understand now why the great ones become alcoholics and kill themselves because well, they're. Yeah. Because you have to go into your mind and into your heart and emotions and pull out, go through everything, stuff that most of us spend our lives avoiding. So, you know, you have to write, to, to, for a great writer, to be a great writer, artist, you really have to go into yourself. And we spend our entire lives running away from ourselves. Right? And you have to go through the gunk. And, and um, I, you know, so I would do both. Uh, what, know, what, what are some I'm of your be... favorite writers who have who have killed themselves or become alcoholics? Oh, Hemingway. I mean, I remember when I read his biography by uh, I think Hutchins. I actually I cried at the end when he got you know when he talked about when Hemingway killed himself. Like, but I got it. Um, it's like you know writing like the kind of stuff also I write. I like to go. I have to go deeper than myself and really figure out the truth for it to come on the page. You know, I don't want to write from theory. And so, um, writing is—it's interesting. I actually blew it out the other day to my mom. Like, I think the only good thing I've done in my life is those two books. It's really interesting that I felt that, and I think I do because I think everything else I've done selfishly, and those two books I did for the world, like to give. Uh, well, you know, one really... one contributes to the other. Like, your life is preparation. Your whole life beforehand is preparation for writing the book. That's. That's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I find for myself, because I, I, I sort of believe a blog post, so I write a lot of blog posts, obviously, and I sort of believe mm-hmm. a blog post doesn't have value unless I can put my own 
personal story into it. And now I have over 600 posts, plus many other like Facebook posts and email articles and stuff. It's almost like there's only so much I can write about myself. And I run into the problem where I have to find other ways to get my story in there without writing my story. So I have to write like your story or somebody else's story or, or just have my own personal stance on something, but still be storytelling. It's very difficult to keep uh, drilling down inside yourself. Yeah, but you know, you're, it makes you better at your craft. And I think that's what's required, right? I think who was like, I think I read a thing about Picasso where like they, would, they wouldn't let him in museums because he would be in museums and he would be touching up his painting. Like you're always trying to, you're always working getting better. Yeah. That's really funny. I didn't know that about him. That's a good one. So, yeah. well, Kamal, thanks so much for coming on my podcast. Finally, after this is the sixth month yeah. of my podcast. This is fun. I can't wait. I can't wait to see it live. Thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah, you'll you'll definitely come on again. Well, we'll you'll be a repeat. I'll I'll have you it. on after uh, after your next book or after your next okay. big investment. Okay. So, um, all right, great. Kamal. Well, thank you very much, and I will me. talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, James. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.